On November 14, 1974, a labor activist and plutonium worker named Karen Silkwood left a union meeting and set out to meet with a reporter from the New York Times. She was never seen alive again. She was set to blow the whistle on the dangerous practices of the Kerr-McGee Corporation, which employed her in the production of nuclear reactor fuel at its Cimarron fuel fabrication site in central Oklahoma. That evening, she was found dead in her car, run off the road and crumpled in a culvert of a quiet stretch of State Highway 74. The documents she had prepared for her meeting with journalist David Burnham were nowhere to be found. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 114, Silkwood. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. With that, let's find out who killed Karen Silkwood. Our story begins on February 19, 1946, when Karen Gay Silkwood was born in Longview, Texas. Her family, consisting of Mother Merle, Father William, and sisters Linda and Rosemary, soon after moved to Nederland, near the Louisiana border. As Karen grew up, she began to show her intelligence, becoming one of the highest-performing students at her high school. In a move that was extremely uncommon for the time, she refused to heed to her mother's pressure and take home economics, instead enrolling in chemistry. She was the only girl. After having one of the highest grades in the class, her mother relented. In 1964, this aptitude earned her a scholarship, which she used at nearby Lamar University, where she studied medical technology. The next year, she eloped with an oil worker named William Meadows, leaving school. Together, the couple lived transiently across Texas and the Midwest, having three children, Christy, Michael, and Dawn. Her new husband's spending habits would eventually become too much to handle, forcing the couple to declare bankruptcy in 1972. Around the same time, Karen discovered that her husband was having an affair with her friend and demanded a divorce. Given the times, until 1974, women couldn't even open credit cards in their own name, Karen Silkwood wouldn't have been able to get any reasonable degree of justice in court. The offer her husband gave her reflected this, an unconditional divorce, giving him total custody of their children as well as their house. Karen would have to leave. She eventually accepted the terms and moved to Oklahoma City, where she worked as a technician in a hospital before learning that Kerr McGee, a U.S. government contractor, was hiring lab workers at their nearby Cimarron plutonium plant. She was hired, and in August 1972 began her work in the plant's metallography lab. Her job was to inspect the plutonium pellets produced in other parts of the complex and assemble them into fuel rods for use in nuclear reactors. Soon after her arrival, the workers at the Cimarron plant, represented by the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union Local 5283, which hereafter I'll be referring to as the OCAW, went on strike. They were fighting for more training, better safety standards, and higher pay. Karen felt compelled to participate. Conditions at the plant were deplorable. Leaks of highly radioactive material were common. People were forced to work with respirators in conditions where the air was not breathable due to radioactivity. 
Employees were ordered to work through and ignore alarms and only to evacuate when given verbal instruction. Injuries and irradiations were common. Workers often waited days to see a doctor and be decontaminated, if it ever happened at all. Glove boxes at the Cimarron plant were full of holes, leaving workers to cover their hands with highly radioactive plutonium. Plutonium samples were stored on shelves and in desk drawers. Between 40 and 60 pounds of plutonium, enough to make three to four nuclear bombs, had gone missing. Kerr-McGee, it was said, treated plutonium like oil. It's understandable, then, why Karen Silkwood saw the Union as the only line of defense between the workers and ruthless corporate greed. Though the strike eventually failed, Kermagee instantly hired teenage farm workers as scabs to replace highly trained personnel, Karen was one of the few workers who stayed on the line until the very end. She eventually became more and more involved in the union, and in 1974, after Kermagee increased production to grueling levels and an incident where she herself was exposed to radiation, Silkwood was elected to the union's bargaining committee. She was the first ever woman. The company was running longer and longer shifts, putting pressure on analysts like Karen to look the other way when testing for faults in fuel rods, and using more and more untrained people to handle the highly radioactive plutonium. Some of the workers could be excused for not knowing the danger in the little gray bullets. After all, the plant was filled with posters telling them that radiation is safe. In her first task as a member of the bargaining committee, Karen was assigned to document the health and safety violations of the plant, while another member, Jack Tice, contacted Elwood Swisher, the national vice president of the OCAW. In return, Swisher invited Tice, fellow union member Gerald Brewer, and Silkwood, who now had been keeping track of spills and safety hazards for months, to testify in front of the Atomic Energy Commission the federal body that was at the time in charge of all nuclear regulation and oversight. The three arrived in Washington in late September, meeting with the then-legislative leader, future vice president of the OCAW, Tony Mazzocchi, who had just finished leading a successful crusade for landmark asbestos safety legislation. At this meeting, Silkwood confided in Mazzocchi that she believed that Kerr-McGee was falsifying records and sending unsafe fuel rods to the federal government's Hanford site in Richland, Washington. Mazzocchi asked her to collect evidence upon her return to the plant, and the group went to speak with two investigators from the AEC, which promised action. After returning to the Cimarron plant, Silkwood was called into a meeting for workers who had inhaled radioactive particles in which she was told that her risk of cancer would be, quote, disturbingly high. The news sent her into a deep depression and led her to begin abusing prescription sleeping pills. Still, she worked for weeks to gather evidence, staying late hours that eventually began to create whispers around the plant. She hid nothing. And then, on November 4th, 1974, Karen Silkwood was contaminated. Part of her job was to make sure that only the correct size of pellets made it into the fuel rods. When the plutonium pellets were too large, they would be shaved down by hand inside glove boxes, which are exactly what they sound like. 
On the evening of November 4th, after working in the glove boxes for an hour, she went to leave and the monitors lit up. She was scrubbed with steel wool in a chemical bath to be contaminated and left for home. Later, the glove box was taken apart and the gloves held water with no leaks. The only way she could have been exposed to plutonium was if it was on the inside. The next morning, Karen returned to work. It was the first day of negotiations for a new contract, and she was on the bargaining committee for a reason. She did paperwork in an office setting for an hour, and then monitored herself for radiation before going to the meeting. Again, she was contaminated with unsafe levels of radiation, and was decontaminated in a chemical bath that made her skin go raw. On November 6, she showed up for work and the meters went off the charts. She was so irradiated that her breath was radioactive. That meant that she had at some point ingested plutonium. Inspectors in hazard suits descended on her apartment and found it blanketed in radiation, the most potent source of which was the bologna and cheese in her fridge. The place was so irradiated that eventually part of it would have to be knocked down. Kermagee maintained that Silkwood was poisoning herself to make the company look bad. Of course, it was later proven that Silkwood didn't have access to the batch of plutonium with which she had been contaminated. The OCAW arranged for her to go to the Los Alamos National Laboratory for testing. They told her that the radiation she received was well within AEC standards, though Silkwood herself knew that the AEC standards were essentially meaningless. At her first meeting for workers who inhaled plutonium, an expert had said, if you can measure it, it's too much. After she returned from Los Alamos, she stayed with a friend while preparing to deliver her long collected evidence to New York Times reporter David Burnham, who had recently blown wide the corruption in the NYPD with his interviews of Detective Frank Serpigo. Tony Mazzocchi at the OCAW had arranged it. The morning of November 14, 1974, Karen Silkwood went to work as usual. Contract negotiations were ongoing. She spent her morning negotiating for the union and her afternoon talking with inspectors from the AEC about the mysterious source of her contamination. After work, she left for a union strategy dinner meeting at the Hub Cafe in nearby Crescent. At 7.15, she left the cafe and began her 30-mile drive to the Holiday Inn Northwest in Oklahoma City. Jean Zhang, a union member at the dinner, would later go on to testify that Karen Silkwood left the cafe with a thick manila envelope, the evidence she needed to expose Kerr McGee for falsifying safety records. In Oklahoma City, Burnham and OCAW representatives waited and waited and waited. Soon two hours had passed. The drive should have only taken 30 minutes. At 8.05, a truck driver found her white 1974 Honda Civic crumpled in a culvert. The car had veered off the road and traveled in a straight line before hitting the wing and slamming into the opposite side. Karen Silkwood had died on impact. The police immediately declared her death an accident saying that her drive back from Los Alamos had exhausted her and she had fallen asleep at the wheel. Of course, they then learned that Karen Silkwood had flown back from Los Alamos. The police then claimed that she had fallen asleep because she had had sleeping pills in her system, never mind that she had been abusing them for months and had to take them throughout the day just to remain calm. 
completely unaddressed were the skid marks on the road signifying she had braked and tried to change direction, or the steering wheel which was dented in two places signifying that she had braced for the crash, or the new dents on her car which had previously had none. Later study of her bumper showed microscopic paint chips that only could have come from another car. And the papers were gone. The fat manila envelope full of evidence that Kerr McGee was doctoring fuel rod weld x-rays and coloring over defects in plutonium pellets. The state trooper on the scene accounted for them when the wreck was towed away, but then at midnight representatives from Kerr McGee and the Atomic Energy Commission searched her car for plutonium, and suddenly the papers were gone. The OCAW brought in Adolphus Pipkin, a crash expert who investigated the tire tracks and the steering wheel and the new dents. He came to a very different conclusion. Karen Silkwood had been killed. The government, however, ignored it, and it remained an accident. Her father, William, sued Kermagee on behalf of her estate. Meanwhile, Kermagee had been systematically cracking down on its workforce, firing and harassing anyone who helped Silkwood or had been associated with the union. Employees were only allowed back on the workforce after they passed a lie detector test, saying that they hadn't spoken to the media. The AEC then began investigating Kermagee for the charges alleged by Silkwood at their Washington meeting. It was a farce. Though even they confirmed the vast majority of Silkwood's allegations, they took no action. Kermagee didn't even receive a fine. Eventually, William Silkwood's suit won a judgment of $10.5 million. One of the witnesses at the trial and the union member at the cafe, Jean Jung, had her apartment ransacked. Members of the prosecution were followed and harassed. On appeal, it was reduced to $5,000 the cost of the irradiated things in her house that had been destroyed. Kermagee claimed no wrongdoing. Eventually, the Supreme Court restored the judgment to the original amount, and they chose to settle out of court for $1.3 million. The AEC, which throughout the 60s and 70s had almost entirely lost the public's trust, was dissolved in October 1974 when Gerald Ford signed the Energy Reorganization Act. Its functions transferred to the new Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the Atomic Research and Development Administration. Kermagee is no more. Not because they received a harsh and summary judgment and went bust, but quite the opposite. They suffered no consequences from snuffing out a life out in the open, brazenly, beyond any reasonable doubt. And nothing happened. Eventually, in 1975, the government declined to renew the contract for the Cimarron plant, and it closed. Kermagee was bought with $16.5 billion in cash in 2006, making a lot of very bad people a lot richer. It since bounced around a few corporate acquisitions and is now part of the massive Occidental Petroleum conglomerate. This is essentially the end of the story but it's not particularly where I want to end the episode. The bad guys win, justice waits to rain another day, and nothing really changes. I'm not sure if that's the message I want you to get out of this story. Karen Silkwood was a hero, and although she was faced with things that are so deeply horrifying that it's difficult to really describe, she refused to back down from what was right 
and fought through the union and through the newspaper for a better future. I think that that kind of incredible courage should inspire us to fight harder for change and work however we can for a better tomorrow. If you liked this episode, consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.